If you were in the midst of a life or death situation, would you think to witness to the people around you? If you were in the midst of a life or death situation, would you think to witness to the people who were around you? John Harper did. Harper was a minister from London who was traveling by ship to preach for three months at the Moody Church in Chicago. And as the ship crossed the Atlantic, it struck an iceberg and began to sink. Now, some of the passengers were able to get into lifeboats, but many were not, and they were thrown into the frigid Atlantic Sea. And as the people frantically tried to stay afloat, Harper swam around asking individuals if they knew Jesus Christ as their Savior. And when Harper found a man who said he didn't know Jesus, he began to share the gospel with him. And as he finished sharing the good news that Jesus Christ died to save this man from his sins, uh, he invited him to place his faith and trust in Jesus. And his, with the, the last breath that he had before he slipped under the water, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then he slipped under the water and drowned. Now we know about this because four years later, there was a meeting of the survivors of the Titanic. And the man Harper shared with said he had been saved twice that night. First, when he placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And second, when he was plucked from the frigid sea by rescuers. Harper's dying wish was that he could bring hope to hopeless people. How many of us have that as our living wish? You may not realize this, but every time you encounter a person who does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, it is a life and death meeting that you're having. And in those times, do we let people know about the one who can save them? As we turn in our Bible today to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17 and following, we're going to see that God tells us we are to be ready at all times to share our faith. So I invite you to look with me now as we begin by reading 1 Peter 3. 13 through 17. It says, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Now you'll notice that our passage begins in verse 13 with the word and, and what that means is it's connected to what we saw last week in verse 12 about the Lord watching over the righteous and turning his face against those who are evil. And because of that, that makes the question here where Peter says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good, a rhetorical statement. It's not really a question. The answer is already there. It's telling us we don't need to fear those who may seek to hurt us. Now, we see that in other places in the Bible. Uh, Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or Hebrews 13.6 The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Those to whom Peter was writing to in the first century, I want to remind you, were under the godless government of Nero. They were suffering persecution. And as Peter is writing this to this first century audience, uh, they knew that serving God or doing good could bring about suffering, just as some of you in this day have found. 
Some of you stand for Christ in the school where you are. And because of that, you're not as popular or you're kept off of teams or uh, your grades may suffer. In college, the same thing happens. You may have a professor who ridicules you for your faith. Your, your grade uh, can suffer because you've stood for Christ. Some of you at work have found that you've been passed over for a promotion or uh, you're not given the opportunities that others are because they're willing to compromise or cut corners and do uh, things the way of the world rather than following through on what God says for us to do. In other parts of the world, what happens is even worse. Some believers lose their homes, their freedoms, some even their lives as they're martyred for their faith in Christ. And this is what was happening to Christians at the time that Peter wrote this. But he says to them and us today, even if any of these things happen to us, he says, we are still better off living for the Lord. Because in verse 14, he tells us, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You're blessed. Now, what does this word blessed mean? It's the same word Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. If you read Matthew 5, 10 through 12, it says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That word blessed is sometimes translated as happy, and that, that translation of happy can be misleading because people think of happiness as kind of a fun, delightful type of experience. But uh, this word includes the understanding that you are highly privileged, or highly privileged to be persecuted for Christ. The ancient Greeks uh, thought of this word using it to denote of someone who was self-sufficient. They said it described one who neither needed nor was dependent on the outside world for their essential sustenance. Now, as Christians, we are not self-sufficient. Rather, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're God-sufficient. What this word blessed means is not that we do things based upon our own abilities and power and strength. It's understanding that we are indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. And as such, he is the one who empowers us. He is the one who is the source of not only our power but our joy as well. And so what Peter is talking about here is this inner joy that we as Christians have even in the midst of challenging circumstances in the world around us. To put simply, it means that we are controlled by Christ and not the circumstances we deal with. Think of the ocean. If you've ever been out uh, on the, the ocean, you know that at times it can be smooth as glass, just serene. And there are other times that it's choppy and there's huge waves and swells. And on the surface, sometimes it's calm, but other times it's raging and stormy. But if you go down below the surface, if you go deep enough in the ocean, uh, it's always calm. It doesn't matter if there's a hurricane on the surface and, and there's a storm that's raging. If you go deep enough, you'll find the fish are just swimming around, not a worry in the world. They're not affected by what's happening up on the surface. Where there's depth, there's peace. And so it is in our relationship with the Lord. If we have an abiding relationship, if we have sunk deep roots into his word and and into our relationship with him, there will be peace no matter what it is we face. 
Jesus Christ said to his disciples in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. This is why Peter, who himself was facing persecution and ultimately death, uh, there in Rome could say, Do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, as Peter writes this, he's actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. And if you look at the context of Isaiah chapter 8, what you find is that the nation of Israel, you'll recall, had split. You had the ten northern tribes that became the kingdom of Israel, and you had the southern tribes of Judah that made up the southern kingdom. And there was a point where uh, as these two nations had split, they were still you know, fairly allied together, but to the north of the northern kingdoms, there was uh, Assyria. And the Assyrians were coming to attack the ten northern tribes. And so the, the northern kingdom had made an alliance with Syria to go against Assyrians, the Assyrians, and they didn't want to have to deal with things happening at their southern border. So they contacted Judah, Judah's king Ahaz, and they said, hey, you need to join the alliance and fight with us against the Assyrians. Now, Ahaz said, you guys aren't strong enough to defeat the Assyrians, and I don't want any part of this, and so we're, we're going to remain neutral. Well, uh, the northern tribe said, well, if you're not going to join the alliance, we're coming to war against you. And so Ahaz suddenly was faced with this, this battle from the northern tribes. And he uh, made a secret alliance with the Assyrians to fight. Now, God sent the prophet uh, Isaiah to him, and, and told him, you should not make this alliance. You need to trust God for deliverance. And so he says in Isaiah 8.13, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. When you hear that word, the Lord of hosts, the word literally means the Lord of armies. It speaks of God Almighty being this powerful God who is stronger than all the armies of the world. And so Isaiah is telling him, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And what this means for us as Christians is there are times we are going to face things in the world where we're terrified. We're going to face enemies. We're going to face circumstances where you're thinking, uh, I have no earthly hope uh, of defeating what I'm dealing with. And what God says is, your hope is in me. Your trust needs to be in me. All throughout the Bible, we find that uh, when we put our trust in God, we will win, sometimes in the present time, but always in the end. Jesus tells us in Luke 12, verses 4 through 5, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What this is telling us, brothers and sisters in Christ, is we don't have to fear uh, death. We don't have to fear anything in this world. For those of us who have our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, death is not the end. It's just the beginning of life. Because when our hundred or so years is over here on earth, then begins eternity for the believer in Christ in heaven with the Lord. It's there that we get to experience the blessings and the rewards that God promises to those who are his. While God also says those who are against God and his people will suffer judgment and punishment. So Peter tells us here, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. 
This word sanctify literally means to set apart. It means to take something and to set it apart for special service. And in this case, we're told to sanctify our our hearts, our lives, and set them apart to God. Now, as we give our lives to the Lord, it, it, it means we have to do two things. The first thing we do is we have to understand and acknowledge who we are. And the second is we have to understand and acknowledge who God is. So let's start with who we are. We're sinners. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It means we, at some point in our life, have done something wrong. We've disobeyed God. We have been unrighteous. And if you're thinking, well, Roger, I'm actually pretty good. I think I'm all right. Uh, Read Romans 3.10 because it says there is an unrighteous, no, not one. There's not a single man, woman, boy, or girl who has ever lived who has lived a good enough life to get to God. We're all sinners. And because we're sinners, we owe a penalty. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. We don't get to God by being good enough. What we get is a deserved punishment of separation from God in the place that we call hell for our sins. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. Now, the good news is that verse goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wages are what we earn, and we can't earn our way to God. But what God did was he came and he paid the penalty of death we owe. Romans 5.8 tells us God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died on the cross to pay that penalty of death that was owed for our sins. And when we receive his gift of grace, we are welcomed into the family. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 5.24 tells us, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has passed out of death and into life. God says, I have a gift of eternal life for those who will receive Uh, my son as your savior, the one who died in your place to pay that penalty of death. And when we do that, we have nothing to fear in the present nor in the future. And as, as those who understand this wonderful truth, we have this hope. We have this eternal hope, this promise of eternal life. And God says we are to share that hope with others. I don't know if you realize this, but hope right now is in short supply for a lot of people. The world desperately needs hope. And we have the hope that God offers. We can share uh, the good news of the gospel and help people to find God and the hope that he offers. Verse 15 tells us we are always to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter tells us here our hope provides both the courage and the content of our witness. Now, when he says we're to give an answer, the Greek word used here is apologia. Maybe you've heard the word apologetics. This is where we get our English word apologetics. The word literally means to make a courtroom defense. It spoke of giving a, uh, a defense for why you believe something. Faith is not just this blind faith. Uh, it's based upon evidence and fact. Now, you don't have to have a seminary degree 
in order to give a defense for your faith. You don't have to be able to talk to the Jehovah's Witness at your door and pull out the Greek text and show them why their translation is in error and why what they're saying is not true. Friends, all you need to do is take them to John fourteen six, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, when you give a defense of your personal faith in Christ, give your personal testimony. Tell somebody about how God has changed your life when you came to faith in Jesus, how God not only forgave you of your sins, but how he turned your life around. When we accept Christ as our Savior, we literally, the scriptures tell us to repent. And that word means to have a change of mind that has, leads to a change of action. The picture is where we do a U-turn, where we've been walking away from God and instead we turn from our sin and we walk to the cross and we embrace Jesus as our Savior. We accept his gift of eternal life. And there is not a person out there who can argue with what God has done in your life. So all of us here are equipped to share the good news of the gospel. Uh, Jesus calls on us to be his witnesses. And Peter says here, we are to be ready at all times to tell others about the hope that we have. Now, what does that look like, being ready at all times? Well, one example that I read was from the, uh, an article in the Dallas uh, newspaper and this story was, in, was titled Ambassador for the Lord. And let me just read this for you. Uh, it says in the article, the plane approached the landing field on Russia's Kamchatka Peninsula. Terry Prinville looked out the window and was surprised to see a row of MiG fighter planes. Mr. Prinville serves as an executive vice president uh, for a, a multinational company, and he was on an extended business trip to the Far East. He and his wife, Gail, were scheduled for a refueling stop. And uh, as he looked at the itinerary for the trip, the paper reports that weeks earlier, uh, they decided to take copies of Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter. More Than a Carpenter is a great uh, small little book that you can carry and, and, and use as a way to share the gospel. And Mr. Prinville had a case of these that had been translated into Russian because he knew that he was going to be there in the uh, country of Russia. And he said, frankly, we didn't even think we would have time to pass them out since we were only going to be there a couple of hours. But as he travels to the far corners of the world, he likes to be prepared to share his Christian faith if there is the slightest crack in the door, and so it was in Kamchatka. The Prinville's plane was refueled and ready for departure when it was discovered that they lacked the proper documents to take off. Approval would have to come from Moscow, where it was 3 a.m., so the flight was delayed until morning. Recalling the trip, Mr. Prinville said the bad news was he and his wife had to spend the night in a small hotel in the nearby town. The good news, he said, was that they had an opportunity to distribute McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter, which had been translated into Russian to the military pilots, the maintenance crews, and others at the airfield. The Russians were so delighted they wanted to give us money but Mr. Prinville doesn't want money. He just wants to open the doors of Christianity to as many people as possible. The article quotes a colleague of his named Mr. Teed, who said in his travels, Terry meets important business and military leaders. He's a kind, sensitive person, and when he sees it's appropriate, he hands out Josh's book. You couldn't give a better gift of friendship. From Hungary to Thailand, Vietnam to China, Mr. Prinville conducts company business 
always discreetly watching for an opportunity to share his Christian faith. The article concludes, we can be Christians in the workplace and we can do it without being obnoxious. Many times as we travel, people can see by our actions that we are Christians and unexpected doors are opened. Friends, as you think about what I just read about this businessman, do you do something like this? Are you a man or a woman who uh, is prepared for those times when the door of opportunity opens to share your faith? When you go to work or school, do you uh, ever take anything with you like a tract or a Bible? You maybe have noticed on all the racks and bulletin boards around the property, uh, we have a tract that says, may I ask you a question? And in it, it contains the Roman road, some illustrations. It's a short, quick Uh, full gospel presentation. You can pick those up. Those are free for you to take and use. Uh, Do you carry a Bible with you in your car or with you at work or school to share your faith? Uh, My daughter Hannah, who's a senior this year in high school, uh, asked me one day, she she has a Bible like this one. You know, it's a, a big kind of bulky study Bible, and she puts that in her backpack with all her other books, and she doesn't have a whole lot of room. And She said to me one day, Dad, can I have a smaller Bible that I can carry around at school? Uh, This past school year, she's led one classmate to the Lord, and she's in a Bible study with another person who's very close to to placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Are you uh, sharing your faith where God has you, at school, at work, on the base where you serve? Now, you may not always be able to open a Bible, so if you memorize the scriptures that you need? Have you memorized the Romans road? You probably have noticed that many times in the sermon when I share the gospel, I will use uh, the Romans road. And it's called that because it's the verses out of uh, Romans. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord God and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And many of you were saying those verses with me because for the last 15 years that I've stood here and preached, you've heard that over and over and over. And the reason I do that is twofold. One, it's a very complete and effective presentation of the good news of the gospel. And the second is by repetition, you have learned the Romans road, whether you know it or not. So are you sharing it? Are you going out there and sharing your faith with other people and saying, God loves you? If you only have 10 seconds in an elevator, you can say, hey, I read about you in the Bible today. And every person I've ever said that to says, really, what, what, what did it say? <laughs> and I quote him, John three sixteen: for God so loved, and I'll say their name, for God so loved Zachary that he gave his only begotten son that if Zachary will believe in him, he'll have the gift of eternal life. And they'll say, is that really in there? I'll say, yeah, look. And ding, you get off on the floor and you open it up and say, it says, for God so loved the world. You're in the world, right? And then you walk them through and you ask him, have you ever accepted that gift of eternal life? Peter tells us to be ready, to, to, to share our faith. As you think about sharing your faith, you look for ways to engage others. One of the things I'll often do is when I'm in a restaurant and the server comes up and is taking your order, I'll say to the, the person, uh, I'm about to pray for my food. 
Uh, is there something I can pray for you? And I will tell you that on numerous occasions, people dump the truck. They'll tell me about a struggle in their life, a loved one who's sick. Some uh, many servers, waiters, and waitresses are in school and they're facing a big test or something. And they'll say, well, I have this sick. Could you pray for me? Sure, let's do that right now. You have an opportunity to pray with them. And then it can lead to other opportunities where I've, I've led people to the Lord standing there at a table in a restaurant. As we share our faith, we can do it, as that businessman said, without being obnoxious. Peter tells us here in verse 15 to do it with gentleness and reverence. When we defend our faith, we're not to come across as some arrogant, know-it-all person. Friends, if you're trying to win the argument, you're doing it wrong. You're trying to win the person to the Lord. You're to do it with gentleness You're not coming in as a prosecuting attorney. God is the one who draws all men and women to himself. It's not the cleverness of your presentation or mine. We are simply to share the good news and allow God's Holy Spirit to be at work drawing the person. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 tells us, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they, may be, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Peter goes on to tell us here in verse 16, And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. As you think about uh, this is, it's just talking about our life and how it can get in the way of what we may be trying to share. I love the story of a, a Christian who was trying to be better about sharing his faith, and he was standing in the express checkout line in a supermarket, you know, the one that says 10 items or less. And as the uh, cashier was ringing up his, his order, uh, he said to the cashier, all have sinned. And before he could finish, the, the lady replied, you too, Mac, I count 12 items here right? You know, sometimes the way we're living, it gets in the way of telling people about God and and the way home to heaven. So what Peter tells us here is we need to live our lives in such a way as not only do we have a clear conscience, but also that no one can speak against us. Now, you may be thinking, well, Roger, none of us are perfect. In fact, you just told us that there's none righteous, no, not one. And that's true. But that doesn't give us an excuse, Christians, to live in a way that we open ourselves and and God's gospel up to criticism. Ask yourself if the way you're living really looks like you know the Lord. Uh, Many of you have heard of of Nietzsche. Nietzsche was the well-known philosopher and atheist. And there was a Christian who was sharing with Nietzsche one day about Jesus. And Nietzsche said to the man, if you looked more redeemed... I might listen to you about your Redeemer. As you think about what people see in your life, what kind of advertisement is your life, your walk for the Lord? Now, some of us look really good on the outside. I get that. Some are, are, are those that we would use the word hypocrites, right? Externally, we look good, but internally, things are not the way they should be. Uh, I... That's illustrated in the story 
about a couple of soldiers who were stationed overseas. And they chose to hire a local man to kind of care for their needs. He moved in with them. He shined their shoes. He cooked their food. He did their laundry. Uh, So he was taking care of these soldiers. But uh, these GIs were not very nice to the man. They were actually cruel. They were always doing things to kind of get him. They would uh, rig pans of water that would fall on him. They would take the guy's shoes and they would uh, attach him to the floor so he couldn't pick them up. Uh, they would they were always just doing things to harass this guy, and through it all, uh, this man was was very gentle, he never retaliated he didn 't react harshly, he just went about his business taking care of them and Because of that, after a period of time, these uh, soldiers kind of felt bad, they were ashamed of themselves, and they got together and they said hey we we, we need to stop this, we need to treat him better." And so they, they called the guy in, and he was a little bit worried what's going on because they were all gathered together. And they said, hey, listen, we feel really bad about the way we've been treating you, and we want you to know it's going to stop. We're going to be nice going forward. And the guy kind of looked at him a little suspiciously, and he said, no more water falling on me. And they said, oh, no, no, that's no, going to stop. He says, my shoes aren't going to be stuck to the floor anymore. No, 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 everything's going to change. What do you think about that? I thought for a minute. And he said, well, I'll stop spitting in the soup. (laughs) You know, I wonder how many of us need to stop spitting in the soup. You know, by that I mean that we look godly on the outside, but inwardly things aren't as they should, right? And it can affect the way we witness. It can affect our walk with God. How many times have you been thinking, I'm going to witness to somebody, but then Satan kind of whispers in your ear, oh, yeah, you're going to tell everybody about God when you're living this ungodly life, and you kind of feel, oh, I'm a hypocrite. I can't do that. Or you're going to pray, and, and you think, well, who am I to come to God? I have all this sin in my life. God doesn't want to hear from me. Friends, if, if that stuff is going on in your life, the answer is not to stop talking to people about God or to stop talking to God. In fact, the answer is to stop the sin you're committing and then turn and talk to God in prayer. Start with confession. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember that God loved you and died for you while you were yet a sinner, as Romans 5.8 tells us. And so if you're living a life where you're kind of spitting in the soup secretly, God says, stop doing that. Have a a change inwardly that is reflected outwardly. God offers you forgiveness, and then you can talk more freely to people about the forgiveness that God offers for their sins. Peter ends here in verse 17 by telling us, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. What he tells us here is sometimes it's in God's will for you to suffer. As you think about your own life, some of you have suffered a lot. And as you think about suffering uh, for God, if he wanted you to, would you do it? If you're somebody who that hasn't yet happened in your life, if God called you to suffer, to make some sacrifice, would you be willing to do it for the sake of the gospel? I'll end with this illustration about a monk by the name of Timelicus. He lived in the 4th century, and uh, he, he had a pretty peaceful life. He was living in a secluded monastery outside of the, the city limits of Rome. 
And one day as he was there in the monastery, uh, God impressed upon him that he wanted him to go into the city. Telemachus didn't know why, but he enters Rome, and as he went in, he found the city was in turmoil, he thought. There were crowds of people. They were pushing through the street. There was just a lot of chaos and pandemonium, and he got caught up in the crowds as they were surging through the streets. He found himself kind of being carried along. And uh, he ended up at the Colosseum where most of these people seemed to be going in. And Telemachus wondered what was going on. And, and then he heard, well, it was the day where the gladiators were going to be fighting there in the amphitheater. And he figured, well, God brought me in and I'm here. Maybe God wants me in there for some reason. So he goes in, he sits down in the amphitheater among, you know, tens of thousands of people that were there. And he's sitting there, you know, just wondering what... Why is he there and what's going on? And then the gladiators entered the arena. They came in on the floor and they, they came up and they're before the, the stand where Caesar is. And they all say, hail Caesar, we die to the glory of Caesar. And as this little monk is watching this. He thought, here we are four centuries after the death of Christ. And people are still killing each other for entertainment of the crowds. And he thought to himself, this has got to stop. And so he got up and he climbed over the wall and he dropped down onto the floor of the arena. And he walks out to the center of the amphitheater where two large gladiators were and all their armors with swords and, you know, weapons. And he puts his hands up between them. And he says, in the name of Christ, stop. These two big gladiators are looking at this little monk and what is this? And the crowd is watching this, and they all start laughing, and they're, they're jeering, and they're, they're saying, get them out of there, let's get on with the fight. And um, so one of the gladiators takes his sword, and he whacks Telemachus across the backside and kind of knocks him to the ground. He goes spinning into the dirt. And this monk gets back up, and he stands between the two gladiators again, and he says, in the name of Christ, stop. Now at this point... People are getting frustrated. They want to see the fight. They start yelling for this guy to get out of there. Uh, Some people are even saying, just kill the guy. Just let's get on with it. And one of the gladiators takes his sword and he stabs Telemachus in the stomach, runs him through. And as he fell to the ground, bleeding, the sand is turning red with his blood that is running out. And he gathers all of his strength and he cries out one last time, in a very weak voice, in the name of Christ, stop. And then he died. Now the crowd that was watching this fell silent. They were shocked by the death of this saintly monk that is laying there now having blood out on the arena floor. And many in the crowd got up and started to leave the arena. And the Roman emperor, Flavius Honorus, was so moved by the sacrifice of this monk that he issued a historic ban going forward that there would no longer be any gladiatorial fights to the death in the Colosseum. Never again would men kill each other for the entertainment of the crowd because one tiny voice, which could be barely heard above the crowd, was willing to stand for Christ. Friends, what could God do with you? Are you willing to be that one tiny voice in the place where God has you, in your school, your workplace, in the base where you serve with the stranger on the street? 
God loves to use people to make a big difference in the world. As you look at your life, are you willing to be used by him? Now, you may be thinking, well, Roger, I, I can't change the course of human history. I can't, I can't have that kind of impact. Oh, yes, you can. I mean, even if you don't impact the entirety of human history, think about that one life that can be changed for all eternity if you will share the gospel with that friend, that coworker, that student at school, that stranger that you may meet in a store or on the street. You will have changed their life for all eternity. And you don't know where that impact will stop because think of all the lives that one life will touch that you may never be aware of. So as we come to a close today, I want you to ask yourself, will you commit yourself to being God's witness in the world where he has you? Will you commit yourself to being God's witness in the world where he has you? And as you ponder that question, Peter tells us what God was willing to do to change the course of each of our eternal destinies. Because 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for loving us, for loving us enough to leave your throne in heaven to come to earth in order to die to save us. Father, as those who have received your gift of grace, may we live in a way that reflects your love to others. Would you help us, God, to find ways to love and serve others in the places that you have us? Would we be your ambassadors? Would we be those who take the good news of the gospel into the places that you have us? And then, Holy Spirit, would you give us the words to speak and the courage to speak, allowing you to do your work to draw these men and women, boys and girls, to faith in you? We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for being here to worship with us. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. God bless you.